You know, the thing that I think is very interesting about that video, take the creepy music out. That's kind of, you know, I wondered about that a bit, right? But I think the thing that's really interesting about that is how God used this man. But he used him in ways that I don't think anyone really expected or anticipated. He used him in ways that I think were absolutely unanticipated. And I think it's interesting because as God transforms a person, He never does it in the way that we expect. It always is in ways that we never see coming through circumstances that we never believe that He can use, and yet He does all of that in His own miraculous and wonderful way. So I got to thinking about that. We're going to talk about Moses, and I want to talk about exactly how in just a moment. But I got to thinking about our lives and how we sometimes live them. There was a man that was driving out in the country. He was going to go see one of his friends who lived a long way out of town. And when you turned into the road that was kind of his property, there was a long and a winding road that went past a barn that was on that was on the property, and the man that was driving in realized there are targets painted all over that barn. And the closer he got to it, he realized that somebody had hit those targets dead center each and every time. So he gets to his friend, and he shakes hand, and they have those warm greetings that happen in that moment, and he he says, I noticed... You've got targets painted all over the barns. And I said, and he said, somebody's a great shot. Somebody seems to have hit that target. He said, well, that's me. And he said, how did you get to be such a great shot? And the man said, that's easy. I practiced shooting at the barn and then I drew the bullseye around it. So I made sure I hit the center every single time. Now there's a moral to that story. And the moral goes like this. It's easy to make your life look like it's on target when really what you're doing is shooting first and drawing the bullseye around that which you shot. And you say, you know what? My life is on target. So my question this morning is how do we move from being people who shoot first to being people that allow God to take us, mold us, change us, move us, and let us become everything that He has called us to be. And I want to do that over the next three weeks through the life of Moses. Because if there's anything you see, and if there's anything the video reflects, it's that Moses is a life that God has taken, shaped, and used, but He didn't do it in ways that we thought He was going to do. So we want to look at Moses in three ways over the next three weeks. We want to look at what God did in Moses. That's where we're going to spend our time today. How does God take a life and what does God do in a life and how does he pour himself into a life to shape a life, to form a life and what and to get it ready for what he is planning on doing with that life? Next week, Jake's going to talk about what God does out of Moses' life. 
And I think that's an important thing for us to see because those are the things in our lives that are the most outwardly noticed. In Moses' life, it is the receiving of the Ten Commandments. It's the parting of the Red Sea. It's the leading of the children of Israel, those 40 years in the desert. Things that you are able to see, things that you are able to really begin to quantify and to see how God is moving and what God is doing. But then there is that third area that we'll look at in two weeks. What does God do beyond in our lives? See, like it or not, you know, I I noticed this morning, I didn't wear contacts today because they just wouldn't go in my eyes. You ever had a morning like that for those of you that do that? They just wouldn't go in. So glasses got to be the option this morning. You know what I have noticed? I've got a lot more skin here than I used to. I mean, it used to be my face was a little firmer. Things were a little, you know, I I didn't have to work as hard to stay in shape. None of those things were very hard for me. I kind of was able to do it. But you know what? We get older. And as we get older, there are physical changes. But here's the big thing we need to pay attention to. There are spiritual changes. And every mature person in faith has a responsibility to be pouring into someone else who is behind them in that process. To invest in them. To help them become everything God has called them to be. That's why I love being a part of an intergenerational church. That we have some gray heads around that over time with wisdom and because of life experience have some things that they can say into the lives of some who are younger and following along behind. That happened for me at 24, really at 20, with a fellow by the name of Jim Bill McIntyre. An old gospel preacher. He had been at the West End Church of Christ, my first place I served for 30 years. And listen, I had great classes at Lipscomb. I had great internships. I was in seminary at Vanderbilt. At the time, I was learning a lot of stuff. But I want to say to you, the greatest lessons I learned in ministry were from a 63-year-old man who took me with him to the hospitals, who helped me prepare my first sermon, real sermon who walked with me and let me make mistakes and created that safe environment where those things could happen. And I will tell you, those are the things that helped me more than anything else. And the things that allowed me. And and, and what I've tried to do is pay that forward. Because I think that's something we all ought to be involved in. And so that third week is going to be looking at that. But I want to look at Moses' story and a particular scene in Moses' story this morning. Now, there are lots of comments and lots of things about Moses that, you know, that everybody looks at the things that he did. Some wiseacre decided to look at Moses' life this way. I found this drawing. Be tough to be Moses' mom, Right? I mean, he just sits there and parts it wherever he happens to be. He got to start all the way through. But I want you to look at his story. Adopted into nobility. An Israelite who is reared in an Egyptian palace. His countrymen are slaves, but he's privileged. 
He ate at the royal table. He's educated in the finest schools. But let me say to you, I think the thing that God did that was so miraculous in the early days of Moses was he made sure his education was done by a Hebrew slave who happened to be his mother. And I think there were some things that were poured into Moses' life during those times because she knew because of who Moses was going to be and who he had been adopted by that he was going to have a place of prominence and position. That he was going to be able to do some things. And I just wonder at his mother's knee, as she is teaching him, instructing him, as she is helping him become all that he was supposed to be, if she didn't say things, Moses, don't forget. Moses, remember from whence you came. Moses, understand the plight of your people. Do not leave them in the circumstance and the situation that they are in. And Moses didn't forget. And so that flame of justice grew until it blazed. And Moses saw an Egyptian official beating a Hebrew slave. And Moses became overcome with emotion and he killed that Egyptian. And the next day, he runs into the Hebrew slave. And in Exodus chapter 2, verse 14, you find these words. Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And at that moment, Moses knows he's in trouble. He flees Egypt. He hides in the wilderness. Call it a career shift. He went from dining with heads of state to counting heads of sheep. It's hardly an upward move. And so it happened that this bright, promising Hebrew who's been raised as an Egyptian begins herding sheep in the hills. It's the Ivy League to the cotton patch. It's the Oval Office to a taxi cab. It's from swinging a golf club to digging a ditch. And his life is going to be very different. I found this description of this process for Moses. Someone said it took the first 40 years as a prince in the palace to give Moses the skills of a leader. It took the next 40 years in the desert to give Moses the character of a leader. Years ago, the evangelist Dwight L. Moody was looking at this particular moment in the life of Moses that we're going to look at today. Forty years, Prince of Egypt. Forty years in a wilderness. Forty years leading the children of Israel. And he looked at that progression and he said these words. Moses spent his first 40 years believing he was a somebody. He spent his next 40 years learning that he was a nobody. And Moses spent his last 40 years learning what God can do with a nobody. I want you to drink that in a little bit this morning. I want you to think about that because here's what I believe. 
And I believe when it comes to life transformation, when it becomes that moment where we want God to move in our life and change us and help us have that intimate relationship with Him, the hardest thing we do on a regular basis is come to the end of ourselves. Because we are quick to believe our own press. We are quick to think that we have the answers. But most of those answers really aren't bathed in very much prayer. Most of those things really aren't things we seek God about. We are fast with opinions. But we are slow at letting God shape us, mold us, move us. I want you to turn, either with electronic devices, if that's easier for you, or in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. I find Exodus chapter 3 to be a remarkable passage of Scripture. For lots of different reasons. It is familiar to you. I can guarantee you that our children through the years have had this passage of Scripture taught again And again, because the story is so iconic. But I think because it is so iconic, we miss it a lot of times. We don't spend the time thinking about what this really is about. I want you to hear these words. Verse 1, Exodus 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame out of a fire, out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And I want you to hear these words. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him from out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take off the sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And then God says... I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And I want you to see Moses' response. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. That little phrase that's in that passage, and Moses turned aside. He began to go investigate. You read it out of the NIV. That was the English Standard Version. You read out of the NIV. You read it out of any other translation. It is the idea that Moses saw something that he could not understand. And he decides that he is going to investigate it. But I love how the ESV renders that. The idea of turning aside. And I'll tell you why I love it. Because I think it's something in our modern age we have a hard time doing. We don't turn aside. 
We have our own agendas. We have our own schedules. We have our own things. We are quick at checking our things off our list. We have these things that we've got to be done. That we've got to be done. We have these places where we've got to go. We have these things that are just dependent on us to do. And it may be that God is trying to take us, move us, and actually encourage us to go do something different, but we just don't turn aside. And we're not willing to go take a look at it. Alan Martin has rekindled a desire for me to read poetry. Now, if you've listened to some of Alan's poetry, some of his is kind of interesting sometimes. But I will tell you, it's been kind of a good deal. My wife, every time I say the word poetry, goes, really, you're a Neanderthal. How in the world are you going to do anything with poetry? But there are some things that I've just discovered because he's been reading some poetry. And I've been listening to some of the things he's been reading. And it's kind of recaptured this or rekindled this in my own mind of things that I have read in the past. I found this one from Elizabeth Barrett Browning about this moment in Moses' life. She writes, Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God, but only he who takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. How many burning bushes do we miss because it is too important for us to go pick blackberries? How many things is God trying to move us toward and help us begin to go and see, but we are so consumed with our own agendas and our own tasks that we do not turn aside and go see what God is doing. Go investigate that God is trying to help us see something that's going to be life transformational, that He wants to intimately get involved in our lives, but we don't turn aside. And we go and we spend our life picking blackberries. Had you and I looked at Moses, we would have said, this man's ready for battle, particularly in those years in Egypt, those first 40 years. Educated in the finest system in the world, trained by the ablest soldiers, instant access to the inner circle of Pharaoh. Moses spoke an Egyptian language. He knew the Egyptian habits. He's the perfect man for the job. Moses at 40, we love. He's got the education. He's got the experience. He's got everything that we think we need in order to use, for God to use him to make a difference in the people of Israel's life, but God doesn't use him then. Moses at 80? Not so much. Too old. Too tired. Smells like a shepherd. Speaks like a foreigner. What kind of impact would he have on Pharaoh? He's now the wrong man for the job. And here's the thing, Moses would agree. Remember... He would sit there and say, 
I tried to intervene once before. I tried to get involved one time before. I let my anger get the best of me, but I was trying to do the right thing and look what's happened. So here's my question. Why does God decide that he's going to use Moses at 80, but would not use him at 40? What's the thing that's happened? What are the differences that have been made? What's he learned in the desert that he never could learn in Egypt? Here's the first thing, the ways of the desert, for one. 40-year-old Moses was a city boy. Octogenarian Moses knows the name of every snake and the location of every single watering hole. If he's going to lead thousands of Hebrews through the desert, he better be very well versed in Desert 101. This is how you survive. This is where you go. This is what you're going to do. This is how you're going to progress. Here's the second thing. It's family dynamics. Moses would have had probably an arranged marriage with a princess of Egypt. But all that goes by the side and he ends up marrying a Midianite priestess who loves the Lord, who has a father by the name of Jethro, who turns out to be an organizational genius who begins to help Moses come to understanding of how he was going to service this people that he was going to lead. But I think you take all of those things and you put them to the side. Here's what I think God did in those 40 years. He had to teach Moses some things about himself. And apparently, Moses has learned it because he turns aside. He goes and investigates. What is it that God is trying to do? How is it that this bush is consumed by fire, but it never, ever burns up? So what do we learn from Moses' life? What did Moses learn as he spent this time in the desert. There's some things. There's three things I think we learn and three things at least I've learned as I've looked at this story. And I think they kind of help me figure out what's going on. The first thing I've learned is we want the burning bush without the desert. I want you to think about that moment. See, all of us, you do not come into this room at 10.30 on a Sunday morning without desiring an intimate relationship with God. You believe that God's got some things to say to you, that God's got some things He wants you to do. You believe that worship is the right thing to do. It's why we come together. It's why we gather. It's all of those things that, that we just come to church for, right? Right? You you can't help but listen to Mike's communion meditation and not be moved by that moment. That, That all is right and that is good. But you know what? It's never been my church moment that helped me find God. It's always been when God showed up in those desert moments. When it wasn't good. When it wasn't positive. 
It's those desert moments that calls for the words of the hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. See, as long as I have ways to figure out my life, as long as I have resources, as long as I have options and opportunities, I don't come to the end of me. It's in a desert when there is no place else to look. There is no place else to go. And the only thing you can do is look up and say, God! It's in that moment that we begin to see what God will do. God meets me in the desert. And God uses those desert moments to shape me and to move me and to help me be everything that I was supposed to be. Here's the second one. God is speaking to all of us if we'll just listen. Listen. Do not buy into the theory that God is not actively working in the world today. You'll look at the world and you'll go, oh, it's gone to hell in a handbasket. There's no way in the world we can do anything with this world. It is unredeemable. Do not believe that God is not working in the craziness of our world right now. Are we willing Are we paying attention? Or are we so consumed with picking blackberries that we forget to take off our shoes because we're on holy ground? And there's a burning bush right in front of us and that burning bush is saying, draw near to me. I'm an all-consuming fire that at the same time creates this position and this place of love and grace. Here's the third thing. God was not the God that Moses wanted. God was the God Moses needed. I have my own preconceived notions of what God ought to do. And I have my own preconceived notions of how God ought to be. But here is Moses as he finds himself in this desert moment. And look at what God has done. He has protected him as he's been in the Nile. He's made sure that he has been rescued by Pharaoh's daughter. He's made sure that his own mother was going to get to raise him in the midst of that, teach him, encourage him, help him understand what a relationship with the Lord was all about and what that really meant, really worked to counter the Egyptian culture that he was going to live in. God did every bit of that. And then Moses jumped in the middle of it. 
and he decides that he is going to, you know, in his anger and indignation, he's going to kill the Egyptian. And he goes and he flees and God uses every bit of that. Listen, none of us want the hard stuff. Not one of us. We want a God who makes our life easy, who lets us laugh, and who lets us never have a problem, never have a conflict, never have anything that goes wrong. We want a God who does that. That's not the God we need. The God that we need is a God who will take us and shape us and transform us, and He will do it in spite of ourselves. That's the God we need. And that's the God that Moses learned to trust. And he held on to him. And he wouldn't let him go. School's out. God tells Moses, now it's time to go to work. Poor Moses, he didn't know he was even in class. But he was. And guess what? So are you. And so am I. The same voice from the bush that spoke Moses' name speaks yours. And whispers to you as well. You may think you've peaked. You may think there's somebody better to go do the job. And God says, no. That's your job. That's your cross to carry. That's your thing to bear. And I'm going to use it for kingdom purposes. The God who began a good work in you will continue that work until you see the Lord face to face. Three Wednesday nights ago in Regen, I gave my testimony and I told this story. And it's, for me, it's a story of perspective now. But I'd been arrested May 1995. May is the worst month of my life. It's my birthday month. I turn older in May. And it seems that every negative thing in my life has ever happened to me in the month of May. I get caught, featured on America's Most Wanted in the month of May. I get tried, convicted, sentenced to 10 years in the month of May. And in the month of May of 1995, as I found myself in the Clark County Detention Center in Las Vegas, Nevada, I was put into a holding cell with 70 other guys. The jail was so overcrowded, they could not move us out of that holding cell. And so I was there, no beds, 70 people, and that was three days worth. 
Because my case was so high profile, it would show up on television. And every time it would show up, it would create a stir in that 70-man tank. And I would have to fight. For three days, I fought nonstop. They'd patch me up, put a Band-Aid on me, stick me back in, and here we'd go again the next time that it went. That was three days' worth. There was this moment... when I got moved upstairs. And being moved upstairs basically meant I was going to be on a cot. The jail was so overcrowded, they had cots outside of each cell door. You couldn't get into a cell. You were outside there, and that's where I stayed for two weeks. Breakfast in jails come at a time. Breakfast in bed sounds like it's a great idea unless breakfast in bed happens at 2.30 every single morning. And they'd show up with breakfast. And on this day, my wife says I have a condition known as facial Tourette's. What she means by that is whatever is in my mind shows up on my face. I don't have a poker face. I don't have the ability to hide what I'm thinking and smile at you. If I'm upset, you're going to know I'm upset. If I'm, if I'm full of joy, you're going to know I'm full of joy. I just don't have the ability facially to hide that from anyone. And so I was in this moment, and I was in this despondent, deep place because I realized just what a messed up, jacked up situation this was for me. And here's the kicker. I realized I was responsible for it all. Every bit of it. And this old trustee, 60-year-old African-American man, takes that breakfast tray and he hands it to me and he goes, what's wrong with you? And why I decided to say anything, because normally I had been been trained to say nothing. It's all good. I'm going to be fine. But in this moment, I said, I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe I have jacked my life up so badly that I find myself in this circumstance And in this situation, and beyond all that, I used to be a preacher. And here I find myself in this place. And I will never forget these words. That man put his trays down, and he sat down on that bunk beside me, and he said, look at me, boy. He said, God don't have. No use to be preachers. He said, but sometimes you are just so intent on messing your life up that he will take you and he will lock you away and he will let you come to some understanding about what your brokenness is really all about. And when you get to the place where all you do is look and trust him, then, then he'll use you. Because my God uses broken things. 
22 years ago. I turned aside and looked at a bush that was burning but was not consumed. 22 years later, I'm just starting to understand what this God is all about and how he takes all of these moments in our life, our joys, our sorrows, our good, our bad, all of these things, and he uses them to mold us, to make us, to conform us more perfectly to his image. So let me say something to you as an individual. If you find yourself in this room this morning and you think, you know what, it's over for me. Let me say to you categorically, unashamedly, and without any reservation, it's not. God has things that he wants you to do. He has things that he has a a person he wants you to be. He's got people that he's going to bring into your life that you are perfectly aligned to speak to, to encourage, to shape, and to mold with his encouragement and with his help. He's not done with you. Here's maybe the bigger challenge. Let me say to us as a church, a church that remembers its glory days, and it remembers when this place was full and, you know, the days that there are people in this room that remember what it was like when John Bannister stood on this stage and he preached and this place was packed to the point that you had folks down the aisles with chairs beside that. All of those things. There are some of you that remember that moment. Let me say to us, church, God's not done with you either. And in this moment, you have a choice. You can turn aside. You can take off your shoes. And you can remember, I'm standing on holy ground and God's got some things for me and this church to do. Or you can pick blackberries. At the end of the day, the choice is yours and the choice is ours. And what God has done in the life of Moses, God will do in the life of you as well. Let's stand and sing.